0: What's up, everyone? This is episode 213 of the Wax Museum Podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards, from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Podcast, and my Twitter is at WaxMuseumPC. All right, guys, well, as always, I appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule to listen and I've got several things queued up for you today that I think you'll find either informative or entertaining or, or hopefully both. I'm going to talk about Alt's decision to implement a buyer's premium on their platform. I've got a couple pieces of Pacers mail that I want to talk about. And then I've got a pretty in-depth look at Panini's use of warm-ups in game use cards. And some of you might have seen another version of that on my YouTube already. This one was modified a little for audio though. Uh, some changes here and there. So you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay. Let me start today by talking a little more about a company named Alt. And for those of you that don't know, Alt is an alternative investment platform that also holds auctions. And I believe they're bi-weekly, or at least they were the last I checked. This is a company I've talked about before, most recently on episode 199. Uh, because they were, they're were they suing BGS, and I believe that's still ongoing. And because they keep trying to tell people how trustworthy they are when some of their business history might suggest otherwise. So that was um, all laid out in that episode. I'll let you decide what you think for yourself there. I'm not trying to tell you either way. Uh, but they are back in hobby news, though, because they put out an Instagram post on March 22nd introducing a 20% buyer's premium to liquid auctions. And according to their post, all auction sales will have an additional 20% added to the winning bid, hammer price, and sellers will now receive a commission for every sale. Now, to me, this didn't really seem like good news, but I'm just one person, so I decided to take a look at the comments, and I'm not going to read through all of them for you, but the last time I checked, all 63 comments were negative, so I guess kudos to Alt for leaving that up and and not trying to police all of that stuff, because I think that would look even worse. So um, I do want to read a couple of them that I feel sum up the overall tone of the comment section. So one person wrote, it would take a special kind of dumb to think this is good as a seller. The buyer pays 80% of what they would have paid to offset the buyer's premium. And then there was another comment that showed up on the top of my feed that said, Y'all own half the cards on your site and you're just paying yourself more. So, you know, whether that's true or not, that is kind of the perception that's out there. So that's something that a company like this has to keep in mind. They might not be fighting a reality, but sometimes fighting uh, the perception of a reality is is just as difficult. So, you know, I've had a couple conversations with Alt's owner over the last year, and I want to make this very clear. They've always answered my questions when I've reached out to them. And that's more than I can say for a lot of major hobby institutions. So I definitely want to thank them for keeping an open channel for dialogue. We don't always have to agree on everything, but the fact that they're willing to talk, uh, that goes a long way with me. So when I saw all of that negative feedback on this most recent post, I decided I would ask to see why exactly they decided to add a buyer's premium. And, you know, I'm not a fan of off-the-record stuff. I don't think that really helps a lot of people in the hobby community. Uh, So I requested an explanation that I could discuss publicly because I think you guys deserve to know um, some of the rationale behind that as well. So, you know, we chatted a little bit and um, he eventually forwarded my questions to the Vice President of Marketing so we could continue things from there. And I'm going to read some of that correspondence to you today. So she said, uh, and this is kind of lengthy, so hang in there. She said, we vetted having a buyer's premium with multiple people across the hobby. And while there's sensitivity around increasing buyer's fees, it's pretty universally agreed that it's standard amongst auction houses in the hobby, and the fees are in line with others in the space. The majority of our listings are from external customers, and we're growing engagement from new bidders and buyers. So we believe it's the right time to move our payment model to what buyers and sellers are used to. While a buyer's premium can help us bring bigger and better cards onto our platform, our primary focus is increasing value to the hobby outside of the fee structure. Things like additional ways to leverage data and give more transparency into recent sales, providing faster payouts, and making it easier to get a loan against your cards. Okay, so that was the first response. And You know, I am curious here. They said they vetted this with people across the hobby. Well, it wasn't the 63 people in the comments. Um, It wasn't anyone that I've talked to. So that's not to say it didn't happen either. It's just, I'm just wondering where are those interactions taking place? And, you know, after this episode airs, I might put out a poll on Instagram to see if anyone on Instagram or anyone that follows me, because I, you know, I've got enough followers that I would think someone would have been part of that. Um, just to see if anyone there was part of that vetting process. So I could also tell though that they had read the complaints about internal buyers that were levied against them in the comments because they brought that up without me even asking. So they know that that's a legitimate issue. But since it was on the table now, I decided I'd try to find out more. So I responded, can you give me a rough estimate of how many of your sellers are internal? I said, that seems to be a point of contention I've seen from multiple people. So they responded, yeah, we don't share specific numbers on things like this, but I'm very comfortable telling you that the number of internal sellers defined as count of employees on our auctions is pretty small. So looking at both the count of internal sellers and the percent of total listings on auction, our recent auction listings are majority external. Now, I know they said they don't share numbers on things like that, but uh, I, I really would like to see them. I, I think that'd be interesting. But, you know, at that point, with all this information, I figured that was enough for me to chew on for a little bit and eventually pass on to you guys because I, I think you guys need to know this kind of stuff that's going on with companies. So I, I thanked them and I moved on. And over the course of the next day, I received two emails from them unprompted where they wanted to correct or rephrase something they had said in the message about internal sellers. So, you know, I did that. You only heard the version today that they wanted you to hear. I'm not going back, you know, I'm not trying to go behind their back or anything like that. I'm trying to be transparent. I want them to be transparent. Um, But at the same time, though, and I'm not telling you anything here that I didn't tell them. Trust me, I sent them this exact message. I said, you know, it's difficult for people like me who want to be fair and objective toward you, to even try and make sense of this for everyday hobby participants. And then I also added, I think it would go a long way with potential customers if this info was shared and accessible from the start. People shouldn't have to poke around for it. Um, but anyway, I did, right? I, I did the, the poking and prodding for you. Um, and the two main justifications for a buyer's premium that I took from all of this was, number one, all the other auction houses are doing it. And then number two, an extension of that, buyers and sellers should be used to it already. And the first thing that comes to my mind here is my mom telling me, just because all your friends are doing it doesn't mean you have to do it too. And I also thought of the 63 negative comments on that initial post, uh, which my mom did not chime in on, by the way. And one of those comments said, quote, really disappointed in this move as they continue to just become like everyone else, they started out as someone who was changing the game for collectors and commissions, but are now just another site. Well, you know, I can see where someone might think that, and and hopefully Alt can see that as well. Um, I'm definitely curious to see what you guys think too. So, as of right now, at least, it just doesn't seem like a move that benefits a lot of people on the platform, but. Who knows? You know, maybe all of those commenters on that Instagram post were wrong. I guess only time will tell. Okay, on to the fun stuff, right? On to the mail. So I've got two Pacers cards that I want to talk about real quick today. Uh, Nice change of pace here. The first one is a duplicate of a card I've talked about several times on the show already. It was a 2017-2018 Flawless Jumbo Patch of Rick Smith's. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I think the phrase duplicate might be a bit of an understatement here because I currently own 13 of the 25 copies. And you might remember when I did my top 50 list last year, I lumped all these copies together to form. uh, It was card number 10, right? But it was really a bunch of cards together. And this was one I had to trade for. I gave up a really nice Nick Van Exel flawless patch in the process but this is probably the nicest Smith's patch I've got out of the 13. It's uh, the middle piece of the number four. So it's got a big gold portion. It's got that white shadow piece on the number. And then, of course, the navy jersey in the middle. And then there's some loose threads, which I'm always a, a, you know, a fan of. It, it kind of gives this card character. And I talked about this a little in my last mailbag, but that's really the only way I can justify amassing so many copies of the same card. When it's a jumbo patch card like this, it's almost as if it's not the same card because all the patch pieces are so different. And at this point, I feel like I could start putting that jersey back together with all the pieces. So as you can tell, I'm very happy to add that one, even though it is one of 13. It's one that I'm particularly excited about. The second card I want to talk about today is a throwback card of a player that only spent one year with the Pacers. It's a 2021-22 Panini Select Throwback Memorabilia Gold Prism Jumbo Patch of Jeff Teague, numbered 5 out of 10. And what's cool about this card is it's half of the 50th anniversary season patch the Pacers wore in the corner of their jerseys during that 2016-2017 season. As I mentioned, that's the only season that Jeff Teague was there. And a lot of times, that's the kind of stuff you can find in these throwback memorabilia sets because it gives Panini another chance to liquidate relic pieces from a player's previous team. I imagine we're going to see more of this as we near the end of Panini's license, uh, which I'm actually pretty excited about the, the whole idea of a, of a relic purge, right? Especially if it looks anything like the patch dumps we saw from Tops and Upper Deck, especially Upper Deck, in the late 2000s. And believe it or not, this is the first piece I've ever owned from one of those commemorative patches In fact, I think I've only seen one or two other copies. One of them, coincidentally, was a Jeff Teague Flawless 1 of 1. I think the other might have been a Paul George card. Actually, I'm pretty sure it was. And ironically enough, you know, I talk about that season. It's not a season I really want to remember by any stretch of the imagination because the Pacers traded George Hill to get Jeff Teague. Um, He ended up being pretty awful. And on top of that, it was becoming more and more obvious that Paul George was likely going to leave after the following season. So that dark cloud kind of loomed over every game until the Pacers finally decided to trade him, um, which they got a great return for him, right? Victor Oladipo and Demona Sabonis. Um, nonetheless, though, this is a really unique piece because it helps me narrate the history of my favorite franchise. It's also just a really incredible looking card. As I said earlier, it's a gold prism, but it also features that checkerboard or X-Fractor pattern, whatever you want to call it. I mean, technically, I know X-Fractor was a TOPS, a trademark term. Um, So if that's something you're interested in seeing, you should be able to find it uh, either on my social media or my YouTube channel or possibly even both. I don't remember. Um, All right. Before I move into today's main segment, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my ebay affiliate link and using this link costs you absolutely nothing just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time but it helps support the show to access this link simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com click the ebay logo shop as planned so whatever you are going to buy you know just click my link and the show gets a small commission in the process once again that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com Hey, this is Bob Nettelke, former Indiana Pacer. Put on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I listening to the Wax Museum podcast. One of the best there is. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, I was cruising social media, and I came across a post from Golden where they were showcasing a Bill Russell warm-up they had for sale as part of their upcoming game-used auction. And even though I'm never going to be in the running to buy something on that scale, I always like looking at that stuff. Um, and they had a nice video to go with it. I thought it was just really nice presentation. So, you know, it's kind of like being at a digital museum. So I headed to the comments to see what all people had to say. I guess that's a, a common theme for today's episode. And I was surprised to see some variation of the same comment show up again and again. Uh, warm-up isn't game used. And someone else said, I've never seen any players play a game in a warmup jacket. And similarly, the comment that was at the top of my feed said, Nice, but are warm-ups considered game used now? And that was from a collector that has an amazing patch collection. Um, I love looking at their page, and I respect all the time and effort that went into curating their collection, because I know that's not easy. So anyway, the whole thing kind of surprised me, because one, I would say most of Golden's followers on social media are card people. And card manufacturers have considered warm-ups to be game-worn for a really long time. And then number two, technically, I think warm-ups are used in a game, and not just the pre-game layup line. You know, when players go to the bench, what's the first thing the ball boys hand them? Uh, You know, a lot of times before they even get a drink, it's their warm-up. So they can put that back on during the middle of a game. So it's all part of the process to me. With that being said, though, I decided to address the top comment from the hobby angle, and I replied, "You'd probably be surprised how many relic cards use warm-ups. And um, the collector responded, "Not really, which cards use warm-ups and claim to be game used. Um, and I, you know, didn't make a huge list for him there, but anyway, he said, first time I ever heard that. And that prompted me to start looking at the panini era sets I remembered that had warm-ups, And I started compiling all these images into one spot. I thought maybe I'd make a five-minute video on my YouTube channel to focus on a few. Well, that's when I plunged headfirst into a rabbit hole. And when I came back out, the video was not five minutes, but 40. Uh, And also, it was like 4.30 in the morning by the time I finished that. Um, Now, if that's something that sounds like it might interest you, like I said, the full version is on YouTube. Um, I guess treat it like a a bonus episode of the podcast. In the meantime, though, I want to spend a few minutes here talking about some of the things that I found. And in order to do that, I think it's only right that I address pre-Panini warm-up cards real quick, too. I don't want to make this seem like uh, this is a situation that is exclusive to Panini because Fleer, Topps, and Upper Deck all used warm-ups as game-worn materials from time to time. And in a lot of those sets, they labeled them as such, Fleer even had a few early relic sets where they showed the entire set of warmups on the back of the card, uh, but there were some labeling errors or mistakes over the years, and I own a couple examples that come to mind. Uh, I have a couple Fleer relics that are labeled specifically as game-worn jerseys on the card, but I know for a fact they're from warm-ups because either the patch itself or the material was never used on an NBA jersey or NBA shorts. And another good pre-Panini case study is Upper Deck's use of Bill Russell materials. And I'm not talking about a lot of the green jersey-like material. I know they had a pair of shorts that they labeled as such. I'm talking about that white, woolly-looking fleece material that they used in a lot of their Russell relics. You guys, if you've you shopped for Russell stuff before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's obviously a warm-up. Well, I found three different relics that came from this source material And the wording on the back of the cards had three different descriptions. So the prime version from Exquisite says, on the front of this card is a piece of a patch from a warm-up worn by Bill Russell in an NBA game. Then there's a non-prime version in SP Game Use that says something similar. On the front of this card is an authentic piece of a warm-up worn by Bill Russell in an NBA game. And then there's a quad relic from Ultimate that uses one of those fleece pieces Uh, and it doesn't mention warm-up. It just says you've received a trading card with Robert Parrish, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Willis Reed game-used basketball memorabilia. So the main takeaway in in all of the pre-Panini stuff is uh, prior manufacturers considered warm-ups to be game-worn, and they didn't always clarify they were warm-ups when they used them. In fact, sometimes they misidentified them. So like I said, this is not meant to be a Panini bash session, In fact, you're going to see that in some cases, I really like the way they've used warm-up cards, or I guess I should say I like the variation of materials more so. And I want to start with some examples that Panini has identified on the back of the card as being from a warm-up. The best example is probably a set from 2016-2017 Limited called Preparation that was actually a warm-up themed set. And on the back of the card, it mentions the material came from a warm-up, in most cases, the players on the front are pictured wearing a warmup. Granted, if you saw my YouTube video, you saw they didn't always match the picture to the style of piece they used in the card, but uh, it was a good attempt. So from there, I would say the majority, if not all, the warmup material that was identified as such by Panini was from All Star warmups. So they had uh, booklets from the 20, I think it was the 2019 All Star game, and then they used the rest of those materials in an immaculate set called special event materials, and both are labeled correctly. There were other years, though, where things got uh, a little vague. So Panini used a ton of pieces of the warm-ups from the 2011 All-Star Game in LA. Uh, In fact, I saw some in a brand new Amari Stoudemire Relic card just the other day. So they're still using some of those, albeit sparingly, but they are using them. And I saw one um, National Treasures Colossal Al Horford card that used that warm-up material, and the back simply states, the enclosed material is guaranteed by Panini America Incorporated. Now, the rest of that material made its way into a ton of cards, all marked as game-worn, but not marked as being from a warm-up, and that kind of describes the rest of the Adidas-era stuff in Panini cards as well, which was a lot of the stuff before Nike took over in 2017, And even then, they were still using those old warm-ups for some time after. Like I said, they kind of still are in some cases, but they had a lot of stuff from that era, especially for a select list of teams. The ones I've noticed include mainly the Timberwolves, the Magic, the Trailblazers, the Nuggets, the Knicks, and the Pacers, Um, although I know, know they had Jazz stuff, they had other teams as well, but these just seem to be the most prevalent to me. So I'm guessing that Panini had relationships with these teams or equipment managers, or maybe these teams were more likely to sell stuff um, on the secondary market. And that included a lot of what we would call shooting shirts um, and then also jackets. And a lot of this stuff got switched out quite a bit. Like they would only use, you know, the on-court jacket changes every year for the manufacturer. Um, so they were only issued for certain time frames. So, they were a lot more expendable and then obviously cheaper. Okay, guys, allow me to interrupt for a moment here to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 29 million trading cards, from baseball superstars like Aaron Judge to Marvel favorites like Spider Man. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. All right, so I mentioned jackets right before the break there. While those were included in the Adidas era, you're more likely to see a jacket used for a retired player than a current player. So we're talking, you know, years before the Adidas stuff here. I've talked about this a little before when I had David, the Clyde Drexler collector on. Uh, One of his top three cards even featured a big piece of a commemorative patch from a warmup. And I gave another example on my YouTube video of an immaculate card of Rick Mahorn that featured a big piece of a 50th anniversary patch. And I will say context clues like that are really valuable for researching source material because we know that that specific patch was only used in the 96-97 season and it wasn't on jerseys. It was on warmups. So if you look at other samples of Pistons warmups from that season, they're made of this like Um, solid cloth material. And I didn't find Mahorn specifically, but I found a Don Reed warm-up that was the exact same style. You know, contrast that to a Pistons jersey from the same season that was made by Champion and had the large mesh holes. So even stuff that was made in the same year, you know, the jerseys and the warm-ups are different materials. So this got me looking at a chunky Rick Mahorn patch I found in a product from that same time frame called Lux. I always assumed it was from a jersey, I guess I didn't pay close attention to the material, um, but I assumed it was a jersey because it had a big part of the number four. But the Don Reed example showed that their warmups had numbers on them, and then this patch had solid material around it and not big mesh holes. So this is the stuff that you can really only figure out when you look at a large number of clues, right? You have to look at all the context. Well, we don't get that in that little patch window, and there's really no way Panini can give that to us either. And... Much like a slaughterhouse uses nearly every little piece of a cow or an animal, you know, the meat itself for humans, uh, the byproducts for dogs and pets, pancreas and cartilage for human medicine. Um, so, you know, much like the slaughterhouse makes good use of all of that stuff, Panini's able to do the same thing with any relic source, including a warm-up jacket. So we're, we're talking thousands of relics here. And all of those stripes and collar breaks, which jackets have a lot more of those, all of those types of things can be used for what we would label prime patch pieces. And you know what? I don't blame them either. It's basic economics. It uh, doesn't bother me at all. I would much prefer that over some you know, outrageous, non-associated, or, or player-worn item out there. But um, nonetheless, that just goes to show, when you look at products in that same time frame that feature Rick Mahorn p- uh, pieces or patches with the teal and the burgundy, and the gold, and you see that um, they have that solid cloth instead of the porous mesh, well then you can almost guarantee it's from that same warm-up that they've used in other products. And that's just one player example. Which then prompted me to look at uh, a more prominent name, like Kobe Bryant, whose jersey spanned a lot of different years in manufacturers. It's hard for people to wrap their head around this now, but there was a time where people were actually complaining about the number of Kobe cards out there. Now, it was more you know, autographs um, because he was a Panini spokesman and they had him sign a lot of stuff relative to his autos in other years with other companies. But as a part of that, there were a lot of relic autos that featured a lot of the lesser desirable pieces from his game-worn uniforms. You might even remember in my conversation with Tone Stakes, who did multiple signings with Kobe for Panini, um, I mentioned that I was worried... They were going through so much material that they might possibly have to move to player worn materials for for him, um, just because they had such a good relationship with him and they had that kind of access. Well, you know, we didn't get to that point, and um, unfortunately, you know, obviously that's not even possible now. But it got me looking at Kobe stuff, and this works a little better visually. But on the video I made, I compared warm up and jersey material from the 2000s, which would have been Nike. Uh, The early 2000s. I know they moved to Reebok at some point. Um, And then I looked at 2009, which was still earlier Adidas. And then I think I also had 2012 on there, which would have been a more evolved form of an Adidas jersey. And uh, hopefully you remember learning about that in my conversation with Kyle, the the Pacers uniform tracker on Twitter. But if you look at the jersey material from all three eras, they all have mesh holes, whereas the majority of the warmups are more of a solid fabric. And I've mentioned this, you know, the solid fabric multiple times on here. I know in the, like the seventies, they used to call that cheesecloth back in the day. I don't know if that's the proper term anymore. I don't know if it's technically the same type of cloth, Um, but anyway, that you you might hear that term thrown around. And I should also caution you here. There were parts of some warmups that had mesh materials on them as well. So just because something has mesh doesn't automatically make it a jersey. Okay, so you just have to study certain teams and timeframes and and what materials were used there. So it is, there is some work that goes into it, but whenever something from that era is the solid fabric or that cheesecloth or whatever you want to call it, you can almost guarantee it was a warmup. And if you look at the Lakers patch on the front of the warmups, it looks very similar to something you might see on a jersey. So some of these patch pieces, if they don't have jersey material around them, are going in these cards you know, kind of incognito, and on top of that, then, some of the sleeves have three stripes on them, Uh, some of the, you know, the sides of the warm-ups have a lot of stripes on them in some cases, and card companies have found ways to use those for tons of Prime patches. The point being, once again, a lot more of these cards feature warm-up pieces than people realize, and, you know, I wonder how many Kobe collectors realize that, but honestly, you know, I don't have a problem with it, In fact, one of my favorite Kobe cards in my collection features an NBA Finals Larry O'Brien trophy patch piece from a warm-up. You can see the stitching where a stripe was pulled off, and you can see the material does not have those mesh holes, okay? Okay, so I know um, I went over a lot of stuff today in a short amount of time. All of that is to say whether or not you actually agree with the idea that warm-ups are game worn. If you're buying relic cards, you need to understand that the manufacturers treat them as such, right? They treat them as game worn and they have for years. And while I highlighted some of them that are easier to identify, there are quite a few that resemble the material used on game worn jerseys and they more or less blend in. So my advice to you is this, figure out what you're comfortable collecting. I know some people only want certain types of of relics or certain types of source material, So do your own research, right? On top of this, you can't just, you know, go off this podcast, right? Go out and do your own research. And then any purchases that happen after that, or as a result of that, will probably mean more to you, uh, no matter what the price of that card does going forward. All right, well, there you have it. Like I said, if you're into stuff like that, I posted a more visual version on my YouTube channel. Uh, and then maybe there was something I talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under At Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle At Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time... This is the Wax Museum Podcast.